afternoon. Welcome to the January 20th Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Happy Inauguration Day, a reaffirmation of America's constitutional republic. With me today are Ambassador Dick Bowers and Dr. Breck Walker, and we congratulate the 46th President of the United States, Joe Biden, and Vice President Kamala Harris, and wish them every best hope for success. Uh, gentlemen, we're, we're recording this for our, our future audience. We're recording this uh, uh, roughly an hour and 50 minutes after President Biden took the uh, oath of office. So we're uh, observing Inauguration Day here and, and kind of watching the news of uh, what's happening. And today we're going to talk about uh, the new president of the United States and his approach to foreign policy. So uh, I take it, uh, Ambassador uh, Bowers and Dr. Walker, you, you all might have uh, taken in some of the uh, ceremony this morning. Indeed, I did. Uh, it was a reaffirmation of American democracy, and uh, I thought it, it was an uplifting and patriotic ceremony. And I think Mr. Biden did a super job with his, with his speech. Um, you know, despite all the pandemic and, and problems, it was a very uplifting patriotic event. So, and no, no untoward incidents that I'm aware of, which was good. And I thought our, you know, Lady Gaga did a, did the job, and J Lo did the job, and then our new, young, petite African American national poet was wonderful. I thought she did an outstanding job. So yeah, that was a home run. <clears throat> Nothing I can add to that. Nothing I can yeah. add to that. It was a, a, a an appropriate American morning and early afternoon. Yeah, the only the only sad spot I think was uh, you know you looked out over the mall and and they had it festooned with the flags and yeah. and things, uh, but uh, it, it was kind of sad to see the fences and razor wire and uh, what we've had to subject our our public uh, common spaces to since uh, January sixth the insurrection. I made a mental note to uh, check out the stock price on Chevrolet Suburbans. I mean. Uh, the, somebody spent a lot of money on those big things, right? There's a, there's a few of them. Well, when you were ambassador to Bolivia, you you probably had uh, some big monster. I had a I had a armored Cadillac. Cadillac. Okay. I did well, want to did... mention though, just as a historical note, that it's the first time in uh, what 150 years that an outgoing president has not attended the inauguration of an incoming president. Uh, so, I, just as a historical note, that's a that's a that's an unfortunate aspect to this transfer of power in my well, mind. Well, I, I will give you not a not a historical note, but an opinionated view. <laughs> I think it was good that he wasn't there. He, had he been there, the whole atmosphere would have changed. There would have been grandstanding and all sorts of crazy stuff going on. So, the fact that he wasn't there kept the kept the spotlight on the person it should have been on the incoming president. No, okay, I can, I, can, I can see it's time for us to move along. <laughs> All right, Ambassador, uh, uh, over to you for uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Well, we got three topics we're going to talk about today. Uh, Biden and the world is one, and then the Biden team, and then we'll wrap up. I think, Pat, you're going to take global challenges and talk to us about that. Yeah, and let's uh, jump into our question of the week, Breck. Right, the question of the week. Uh, everybody will be glad to know that I've already consulted with uh, that noted uh, expert linguist, Pat Ryan, to make sure I get these names right. But the question of the week is, 
Russian authorities detained this most prominent opposition politician when he returned to Moscow on January the 17th and staged a trial at a police station. He had been in Germany uh, recovering from an attempted assassination by poisoning, which he blamed on Vladimir Putin. The U.S. and EU are calling for his, this person's relief, release, and the answers, the possible answers are A, Vladimir Rishkov, B, Alexei Navalny, C, Dmitry Medvedev, and D, Sergei Fergal. So the answer will come at the uh, end of the program. Thanks, Pat. Well, we should probably always mention that uh, Ambassador Bowers in an, an earlier uh, career was a uh, cryptologist, uh, whatever the army call it, the Navy, they, they're called cryptologists, uh, at Station Berlin. Um, the official uh, title was Voice Interceptor. Yeah, so he's his Russian is very good. We probably we should we should probably switch those around when we have Russian names and, and let the ambassador uh, <laughs> take uh, take those. We'll see. Um, That's a great point. But let's uh, let's put the ball in, in your court, uh, Dick, and uh, lead off with uh, with your piece on uh, okay Biden administration. So um, the United States today is the most powerful country in the world, but it is also the most politically divided and economically unequal of all the world's wealthy democracies. So President Biden just took his oath of office and became the 46th president of the United States. But he took that oath in an environment with a pandemic ravaging our land, our economy reeling, and with millions of Americans seeing our new president as an illegitimate president. President Biden comes into office with a divided country and with one of the worst efforts in the world to battle COVID-19. For example, we are but 4% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the COVID-19 cases. So getting the vaccine into the arms of Americans as fast as possible, I think, will be Biden's highest priority. And then tackling the economy will be, will be right behind that. Uh, stimulus checks and massive governmental infrastructure spending and getting money in people's pockets and getting them back to work will be high on the front burner. And then there's the world to deal with. So far, Biden has, by all accounts, assembled an outstanding foreign policy and national security team. The people that he has named are all top-notch. And thanks to the Senate seat victories in Georgia, he should have no problem getting those people confirmed. So President Biden has already signals his, his signaled his intention to not just rejoin the parent Paris Climate Accord, but to really put resources and regulations toward a post carbon energy environment. And John Kerry's environment czar will bring gravitas and focus to that effort. There's a lady named Robin Wright, who is an American foreign affairs analyst and writes for the New Yorker. And she has come up with what she calls the seven pillars of Biden's foreign policy. So let me share those with you. Wright's first pillar is that the United States is back. Biden wants the United States to engage in the world, to lead, and to set the agendas. According to Wright, most of the 27 nations in the European Union are somewhere between relieved 
and openly ecstatic about Biden becoming president. Under Biden, America will indeed be back. Pillar two is that we will be pooling resources, particularly where there are threats. I expect that Biden will move very quickly to repair relations with the world's largest military alliance, NATO, after four years of bad-mouthing and trash-talking by Trump. Most of our closest friends are also our NATO allies, and Biden will again treat them as the good friends and allies that they are. And finally, I think that Biden will push and adapt and broaden NATO's mission for the many 21st century challenges it will face, such as changes in military technology, climate issues, and cybersecurity. Pillar number three, deals with Biden's belief in international treaties and institutions. One of Biden's top priorities will be to breathe back life into the transatlantic alliance that Trump took such pleasure in bashing. The US will be back full steam in the United Nations and the World Health Organization and UNESCO. And Biden will work with the three European powers, the UK, France, and Germany, as well as with Russia and China to modify and strengthen the Iran nuclear deal that we signed in 2015 and that Trump abandoned in 2018. We will rejoin the Paris Agreement on Climate Change and we will reconnect with our major training partners. It did not make much of a headline here, but after Trump unilaterally pulled us out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, 10 Southeast Asian countries, as well as South Korea, China, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand, formed the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. It's the largest trading agreement in the world, and we are not part of it. China gained when the RCEP was formed. We lost, and we need to get back into the game. Pillar number four concerns human rights. Trump gave too many despots and authoritarian leaders a pass on human rights. I think Biden will be much tougher, for example, on the Saudis who murdered Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, or on the Russians for their poisoning of Alexei Navalny, and the Burmese and the treatment of the Rohingyas, and of course, on China for their brutal repression of the Uyghurs. A fifth pillar for Biden, according to Wright, is getting tougher on undemocratic regimes and dictators. The incoming president won't glad hand despots and strongmen like Russians Putin and Turkey's Erdogan or Trump's best friend, the little rocket man, Kim Jong-un. Trump made Saudi Arabia his first foreign visit. I think Biden will probably do a trip to Canada or Mexico. So relations with China and Russia will be top on the agenda. My take is that President Biden will be tough on both of them, but will look for areas of common interest where progress might be made. Renegotiating the New START Treaty with Russia will probably be high on the to-do list. Pillar six is that Biden's foreign policy will be more respectful of countries with fewer resources and little power. Trump's description of shithole countries in Africa will be gone. As president, Trump never went to Africa. Biden has been there many, many times over the four decades he's been in the American political game. America's soft power will be back in the game. And finally, pillar number seven is the fact that Biden is an unapologetic globalist. 
And that worldview of his will carry over into his approach on issues ranging from the pandemic to worldwide economic recovery, from terrorism to climate change and refugees and migration. There will be no more of Trump's America first sloganeering. So those are Robin Wright's seven pillars and I would just like to add one more to the list. I think that Biden will put Vice President Kamala Harris in charge of major fields of endeavor and that many of them will be international, not just domestic. Now, several months will be needed to get Biden's new national security team in place to reestablish a disciplined policy process and to complete initial interagency policy reviews. Finding enough time for all these issues that hit that overflowing presidential inbox will always be a challenge. But in my view, President Biden is off to a great start. Trump is gone. The repair, rebuilding, and creating a better world now begin. So I think Robin Wright's typology was a good one. And there is much to do. And I am feeling somewhat optimistic that President Biden has put together a team that can actually do a lot of that stuff. Rick, any, uh, anything to add or questions uh, for the ambassador there? Anything to, to challenge him on? I think uh, Robin Wright had a good, uh, a good summary. No, good points. Uh, again, I think that it's uh, not that this is directly foreign policy related, but uh, President Biden's had an amazing journey because who would have thought when he decided with, by all accounts, uh, advice from uh, President Obama not to run uh, the year that uh, Hillary Clinton ran and to step down. And I think everybody, including me, figured that was there was yeah. not going to be another hurrah for him. And yet here he is. That's quite a that's a that's an amazing story, I think. You know, you, I agree. And, and, and after, after, New life, Hampshire, said, after New Hampshire, his uh, his prospects for this nomination uh, were, were not very good. Uh, I'm sorry, Dick, go ahead. Good point. I'm sorry, Dick, go ahead. No, I just said he's had some rather real ups and downs on in, in his in his personal life that I think made him a pretty stoic individual. And uh, I think he's got his values together. He knows what he believes in and what he stands for. And I think those parallel very well and easily with kind of the American credo of what Americans say they believe, like liberty and democracy and you know, taking care of each other and all those kinds of things. So that's going to be an interesting time. And then one other thing that I would add, and Dick certainly touched on it, but uh, I think there may be a lot of people out there who think that from a foreign, from a foreign policy perspective that the Biden administration will be uh, Obama part two. And I don't think so. I think there are going to be some distinctive differences in, uh, in how they approach specific crises in the future. And it'll be interesting to uh, watch and evaluate that and be lots for us to comment on down the road. Well, we're we're going to talk about the uh, the challenges ahead, and and uh, a lot of these uh, these three segments are are well integrated. Um, I'll I'll note uh, two things. One is uh, ambassador, you gave away the answer to the quiz question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see if anybody was listening. Pat. <laughs> so. The the answer is not Erdogan. Um, if anybody. Is trying to pick up on it. You can't roll the tape back quite just yet. Uh, the, the other I would note is that uh, you know we're all uh, globalists, uh, as dirty a word as, as that is. Um, 
and and you know news nerds and focus on international relations. But uh, if you look at uh, the Biden transition documents, the top four, three or four items on the list have nothing to do with foreign affairs, uh, unless you, you count climate change. And, and that's uh, in the administration squarely a domestic issue in terms of uh, reinvigorating alternative energy and so forth. But he's looking at, uh, at issues like the pandemic, number one, uh, economic recovery, uh, addressing social injustice, uh, climate change. And now we have this uh, nasty little secret that America has kept under the rug uh, for a couple of decades, the, the white supremacist movement and, and uh, extremists who uh, reject uh, the basic tenets of American democracy to deal with. So foreign policy, I, I wouldn't say is far down on the list, but it's not uh, squarely in front of uh, uh, president, uh, well, now president. I, I might take exception with the idea that, I mean, we're dealing with a global pandemic. It's a pan, meaning worldwide, right? Sure. I don't, we cannot solve the COVID-19 problem by just building a wall around America and assume that we're going to be okay because we all got our shots. But I mean, we have to engage. It's a foreign policy issue. No, without a doubt. But his, his uh, approach, uh, his looking at the problem is, yeah. uh, is getting everybody a jab in the arm um, and and uh, well, I think you'll see that he, uh, down the road once we get this under control and it's clear that we have enough shots of the vaccine to take care of the Americans. I, I think he will reach out to the rest of the world and see what what we can do to help inoculate other folks. So, yeah, well, we saw this in this past week the uh, WHO director uh, complaining that Covax, which was the international consortium to get uh, vaccinations to. Uh, less wealthy countries because they, you know, as you correctly point out, this is a global pandemic and we can't isolate it as uh, fixing our own backyard and not wor worrying about the rest of the world. But uh, as I was saying, this uh, these three segments are, are well um, integrated and synchronized. And uh, even though the Biden administration may be looking at the domestic issues, uh, staring them in the face, there is uh, an incredibly competent uh, foreign policy team that he has assembled who will be uh, working on uh, separate tracks to uh, address these, these issues that uh, you put on the plate, Dick. And, and to turn to uh, Dr. Breck Walker, uh, he's gonna talk a little bit about the, some of the, this foreign policy team. Breck? Uh, thanks, Pat. Um, if Biden's foreign policy agenda broadly thought of was a film, I think it might be called Back to the Future because, and Dick touched on this, because I think that foreign policy agenda is all about a return to whom we used to be in terms of our place and role in the world. I think that the Biden administration wants to restore the centrality of good old red-blooded diplomacy uh, to make that central to America's approach in international relations. I think the Biden administration, as Dick mentioned, wants to re-engage with our allies, they want to return to full-throated participation in international institutions, and they want to move climate change to the top of the national security agenda. And we've talked about on GNR, uh, the foreign policy team, uh, in some detail in uh, a previous episode or two. So I'm going to really hit just some great highlights, and I've tried to find some uh, colorful anecdotes about some of these uh, people in uh, coming into the administration that will uh, humanize them a little bit uh, uh, in any event. But the national security team, first and foremost, is characterized by two things, deep, deep experience in their fields, 
And uh, they are people that are very well known and in most instances have worked for a considerable period of time with Biden, uh, particularly in the Obama administration and then even before when, uh, when he was a senator. So everybody knows one another. Uh, and I think that that will be a major uh, advantage for this foreign policy team uh, uh, overall. There's not going to be very many surprises uh, about uh, uh, buy-in between this team. So starting off with Secretary of State uh, Anthony uh, Blinken, he has 20 years of foreign policy experience. And during the Obama administration, he served first as Deputy National Security Advisor and then as Deputy Secretary of State. Uh, while in that administration, uh, the press reported, and I think uh, Secretary Blinken was pretty outspoken about this at times, he was more of an interventionist than uh, President Obama was. Uh, Blinken thought the U.S. should have intervened in Syria and thought it was a major mistake not to, and he actually publicly praised the Trump administration for sending defensive military weapons uh, to Ukraine. Uh, but one thing that uh, one thing, if nothing else, that Tony Blinken is going to bring to the table is a change of tone in the State Department. I don't think that, uh, as Dick said, we're going to be uh, America first anymore. We're going to be more cooperative. We're going to be more collaborative. Hard discussions are going to take place not on Twitter, but uh, behind closed doors in many instances. And uh, the tone is, uh, again, back to the future in, in some respects. Now, there's a French news site that uh, said this about Blinken. Quote, he is courteous and refined and with a side passion for rock guitar that should provide a stark contrast to the rough-edged, hard-charging Mike Pompeo. Well, now, out of all of that, the thing that caught my attention, of course, was rock guitar. And I had uh, absolutely no idea about that. And I've since uh, gone to look into it a little bit and uh, came up with, uh, uh, with this. I'm going to see if I can put it up. Now, I'm going to... Uh, Blinken plays in a rock band in Washington, D.C. called Coalition of the Willing. And uh, he also has written a, a couple of songs uh, that are original to him and that are, not, are now on Spotify and Amazon Music. Uh, and one of the songs, which I'm going to play a version of, is called Lip Service. This is a song that the secretary wrote, and it is about unrequited love. So let me uh <laughs> so I encourage everybody to go to Spotify or Amazon Music. I don't think Tony Blinken has ever looked better than he does in that picture. <laughs> and uh, uh, unlike Reagan going from movie star to president, uh, here we have a secretary of state that may be going from secretary of state to rock star on the uh, level of Lady Gaga. So we'll see. But I encourage everybody Ooh. to uh, listen to uh, his uh, music. He went uh, to school in France, didn't he? Uh, he grew up in France, yeah. uh, and uh, he did. He grew up in France and moved there when he was nine years old and spent his uh, younger school years there, for sure. I don't believe he went to college there, but he, he did grow up there. Yeah. Good, good point. So the next one on the defense team, on the national security team, of course, is Secretary of Defense Lloyd J. Austin III, who retired as a four-star general in 2016 
and his last posting was uh, chief of U.S. Central Command, which of course oversees all the, the military operations in the Middle East. Uh, Biden wrote an op-ed in the Atlantic uh, a little bit ago uh, on General Austin, talking about, quote, the countless hours he spent with Austin in the Situation Room and out in the field after President Obama uh, had tapped Biden as VP to oversee the withdrawal in Iraq. So Biden has a lot of experience with the general and as well, Beau Biden, who is the deceased son of the uh, president today, Beau Biden uh, was in the National Guard uh, back in the early and mid 2000s and was deployed to Iraq in 2008 and nine and actually served uh, for many months on Austin's staff over there. So there's a, there is a big, big uh, connection there. Uh, general Austin is originally from Alabama. He is the first uh, black general to command a US Army division in combat, the first black general to lead a corps in combat, the first black general to command an entire theater of war, and also to serve as vice chief of staff and eventually CENTCOM commander, uh, as I mentioned. Uh, General Austin is notoriously media shy, has uh, in his previous military roles gave uh, very few public uh, appearances and was very reluctant to engage with the press. He rarely sat for interviews and those kinds of things. So it will be interesting to see uh, how that part of his persona develops uh, going forward now as Secretary of Defense. The National Security Advisor uh, uh, is Jake Sullivan. He represents, I think, the next generation of foreign policy leaders because he is 43 uh, or maybe just turned 44 years old. And here's a, a question for Pat and Dick. Jake Sullivan is the youngest national security advisor in almost 60 years since the first national security advisor under John F. Kennedy, who was, uh, I think, 41. Do you guys know who that was? Um, Kennedy's National Security Advisor. The very first one. I had to look it up. Rogers? Rogers? Uh, George Bundy. George Bundy, of course. So Jake Sullivan, uh, Yale undergrad, Rhodes Scholar, Yale Law School, and while at Oxford doing his Rhodes uh, scholarship work, he finished second place in the 2000 World Debating Championship. Uh, pretty, uh, pretty impressive. He was deputy chief of staff to Hillary Clinton when she was secretary of state and then moved to director of policy planning, which is a very senior position and strategic oriented position uh, in the State Department. Uh, and when she left uh, the State Department, he became national security advisor to vice president to then Vice President Biden. Uh, and he's more than once, Jake Sullivan stated his overarching foreign policy philosophy, which in, in my words at least is that the US derives its global influence and strength from a thriving American middle class. And that the primary or certainly a primary goal of American foreign policy ought to be preserving the, pro the prosperity of that middle class through addressing uh, transnational threats. And uh, I, I, I personally think that's uh, well said. It makes a lot of sense. Do you, know, do you know who the president of the Foreign Affairs Council is? Richard Haas? Oh, Richard Haas, yeah, today. Uh -huh. well, the count, he the he also was the you know, policy planning guru. Oh, that's right. That's sure right. Yeah, exactly right. CFR. Yeah, so, Council on Foreign Relations. 
the next one I want to just talk a minute about was the director of national intelligence, uh, Avril Haines, who has an incredibly interesting uh, background uh, in my mind. Now, the DNI, uh, the director of national intelligence, was set up in the George W. Bush administration, and uh, the uh, that position, the director, is the primary intelligence advisor and the leader of the U.S. intelligence community. Now, President Trump. Uh, eventually put two loyalists into that position, and that gave it sort of a political coloration that it hadn't had uh, in the past. Uh, and Biden is returning that position now to intelligence professionals. Uh, now, Avril Haines, <laughs> she has an unusual background for the nation's top spy. Uh, she left high school, wanted to take off some time from college, traveled and lived in Japan for a time, and uh, earned a brown belt in judo at the leading judo academy uh, in Japan. She then came back to the US, uh, attended uh, as an undergrad at the University of Chicago, majored in theoretical physics, but growing up had always had uh, an ability to fix things and uh, washing machines, refrigerators, mechanical things. And she worked part-time, but regularly as an auto mechanic while she was going to school to help pay for her, her tuition and her specialization was fixing and rebuilding Subaru car engines. After graduation, she moved to Baltimore, uh, was thinking about uh, possibly getting involved in community organization and whatnot, but she instead uh, 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 bought out of bankruptcy a building in which she opened up a bookstore and a cafe that in 1997 was voted by the Baltimore Sun, the main newspaper in Baltimore, as the best bookstore uh, in Baltimore. She left that and went to Georgetown Law, and in 2003 went to work in the State Department, working in the field of treaties, and soon becoming an expert on international law, where she drew the uh, attention of both the Bush and uh, the Obama administrations. <coughs> under Obama, she became the first deputy director of the CIA under John Brennan, and she uh, became deputy national security advisor under President Obama in his second term, and she is the first woman to head up the intelligence community. I wanted to move on just very quickly to Homeland Security, Secretary of Homeland Security nominated, Alejandro Orcas. Um, now, uh, DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, has been in turmoil throughout the Trump administration, right? It's had five secretaries in four years. And uh, during the Trump administration, I think it's fair to say that the emphasis at DHS moved away from counterterrorism, which was its original mission, to, uh, uh, among other things, but significantly immigration and border control. Now, I think the Biden administration will want to bring back some leadership ability, stability to the department and likely return its primary focus, <coughs> excuse me, to counterterrorism, cyber threats, and in the near term, uh, pandemic response. Uh, Mayorkas is probably the most controversial of Biden's picks, and it's probably the one that'll be slowest to get uh, confirmed. Uh, prior in the Obama administration, he had initially served as director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and then in the second term became deputy Homeland Security uh, Secretary. He was born in Cuba, and his parents immigrated to the United States after Castro came to power. So he becomes, if, if, uh, uh, if approved, the first Latino and the first immigrant uh, to, to run DHS. Now, he's a former assistant U.S. attorney in California, a federal prosecutor, 
who among other trials prosecuted the money laundering and tax fraud case brought against the Hollywood madam. I don't know if you remember this, Dick, the Hollywood madam Heidi Fleiss <laughs> in the 1990s. And I was Mr. overseas during the time, Breck. I don't know. <laughs> Ms. Plausible Fleiss, deniability. <laughs> Ms. Fleiss said uh, about uh, Ali, as she called him, which is what Alejandro goes by to his friends, uh, Ms. Fleiss was not one of his friends, but uh, he was prosecuting her. But she said, quote, Ali comes across as so personal, personable and sweet. I think he should run for office. I really like him, even though he was the blankety blank who was begging the judge to give me 10 years. So that's uh, that's high praise from somebody he prosecuted and sent to prison. But I'd hasten to add that he has been uh, uh, supported and recommended by the four former, prior to the Trump administration, the four former DHS secretaries, including the two Republican ones that served under George W. Bush, who are Tom Ridge and Michael Chertoff. Uh, so that's uh, high bipartisan uh, praise. There is a little bit of controversy about him because uh, when he was in the DHS in the Obama administration, there was an inspector general report that came out that faulted him for uh, inappropriately helping several companies obtain employment visas at the behest of politically connected Democrats. But the inspector general specifically said uh, that he did not break any laws, uh, but he had uh, his actions created an unfortunate perception of favoritism and special access. And uh, Mayorkas denied, denied any impropriety, but he said he, he needed to be on guard more about perceptions and maybe made some bad judgment calls here uh, and there. Uh, Josh Hawley has uh, put a, uh, a hold of sorts on his confirmation, so he may not be fast-tracked, but it uh, I can't imagine that he's not eventually gonna be confirmed. Oh, he was digging digging into that uh, controversy with the Inspector General's report, right? I'm sorry. Oh, it was when he was digging into that Inspector General's report and, and complaining. Right? He sure was. Yeah, he sure was. Uh, and then the last one I wanted to mention is the presidential envoy for climate, uh, who is John Kerry. Now, of course, John Kerry is former Secretary of State, former Senator from Massachusetts, Democratic uh, presidential nominee. And uh, I think he's represented the United States as a senator or uh, in, other, in, a, in some other capacity at nearly every important international climate conference uh, in the past three decades. Mm. Um, as Obama's second secretary of state, he played a very key role, perhaps the key role in negotiating the 2015 Paris uh, Climate Accord. As presidential envoy for climate, he will report directly to President Biden and will be a part of the White House's National Security Council. And this will be the first time that the NSC will have an official dedicated uh, to climate change. And I think that of course reinforces and represents and, and uh, reiterates Biden views that global warming uh, to Biden and his administration is a national security issue in a topic that will uh, and should impact foreign uh, and defense policy. And just as a quick reminder, uh, John Kerry served in Vietnam. He won, uh, he was awarded a uh, Silver Star, Bronze Star, and three Purple Hearts, and later became uh, a critic of the war. And uh, at least in my mind, it's hard to imagine uh, a better resume coming out of an unpopular war like that than one that he had fighting in it 
winning several medals and then coming out and, and giving an honest view of what he thought about things. Uh, one of my favorite little facts about him is that uh, John used to date actress uh, Morgan Fairchild uh, in between his marriages, and uh, he counts uh, John Winthrop, the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, as his seven times great-grandfather on his mother's side, which allows me to go full circle, that under Biden again, with John Kerry being connected to John Winthrop, the very beginning of our country, uh, under Biden, U.S. foreign policy is going back to where it used to be, full circle. So that's it, Pat, thanks. <laughs> well done. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Walker. I, I would never imagine we'd have had a segment that tied together John Winthrop, Heidi Fleiss, and Morgan Fairchild. <laughs> but uh, but there you have it. Let me mention uh, one other uh, uh, new new uh, portrait in the national security team, and that's uh, Ambassador Bill Burns. Um, uh, Dick, you you might want to comment on this, but Ambassador uh, now uh, nominee. Um, to be the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. William Burns is a distinguished uh, diplomat. He's leaving a position as president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which is a think tank in Washington. Uh, he's, uh, uh, Dick, feel free to jump in here, but I'll, I'll just mention that he was connected with the uh, negotiations to bring Iran to the table for the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iranian nuclear deal which was uh, terminated by President Trump. And there is some hope that uh, negotiations with Iran will be a part of the opening round of uh, Biden administration activities. Dick, anything you wanna add just, about- uh, Two things. This is a very good read, which Bill Burns wrote. So he's, he's, uh, he is a preeminent foreign service officer uh, in the top of the class. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, you know, if, if you're in the Foreign Service long enough, you'll end up having friends from other US government agencies, for example. So several of my best friends are retired CIA officers. And to a man or one woman, uh, they think that the Burns is gonna be a really excellent choice. So I'm optimistic. Let's also mention that the, uh, uh, the number two at state will be Wendy Sherman. Uh, she was also involved uh, uh, probably more directly uh, with the Iranian uh, negotiations for the JCPOA. Uh, so that's, uh, and, and I think um, as Breck pointed out at the top of his segment, uh, all these folks uh, know each other from past lives and past positions in Washington. Uh, they'll, they'll make a good team working together. And I'll mention that uh, the Biden administration has indicated that they will appoint a name to be announced a director of the Global Health Security Office. And you may recall that uh, President Obama instituted a position at the National Security Council, which uh, took up the, uh, the threat of global pandemics. And when that was handed off to the Trump administration, it kind of fell into disuse, uh, much to uh, America's dismay. Uh, so that's uh, that's a look at uh, some of the uh, the cast of folks coming in. Uh, thanks for sharing the guitar uh, sequence there, uh, Breck. I, I was trying to imagine in the in the furthest reaches of my mind uh, Mike Pompeo uh, playing a guitar. But it, I, it it just it just didn't uh, come to me. And I'll, I'll say of Avril uh, Haynes, uh, judo uh, belt is probably good preparation for working in, uh, in you know for, for she she also if i remember correctly uh I, I don't know if it was before or after the coffee shop 
I think it was before, she bought a, a beat up airplane she and, did. And, no, and rebuilt yeah. the whole thing and then took off and flew it up to Greenland or something like that and something that happened and so she didn't fly it all the way around the world. But she was on her way to Europe and ran out of uh, fuel in uh, somewhere in the Canadian Maritimes. And um, I think there was a connection with her future husband at that point. But yeah, that was a flight instructor yeah. that, uh, that got her her pilot's license and they were flying together, uh, trying to do the cross-Atlantic uh, crossing and uh, had to, <laughs> not crash landed, but uh, had to find a little airport to land in when uh, they knew that uh, they weren't gonna make it even halfway over, but. <laughs> Good thing they weren't planning the Lindbergh flight. Okay. Uh -huh. So uh, let's see, we got one more segment here and this, this is kind of the, uh, the catch-all and, and you guys can uh, jump in here liberally. Uh, it's uh, the challenges ahead and, uh, you know, in the uh, news review in past weeks and months, we've laid out, uh, I think, in, in good detail what America faces on, in the world in terms of global challenges. And I had uh, put together uh, a couple of bullets to, uh, to share, but then about uh, a half hour before airtime here, uh, lo and behold, an article dropped from uh, Mr. Jake Sullivan in, uh, in the current edition of, uh, of Foreign Policy. And uh, I just want to share some of that with you to kind of get a, a flavor of what um, the administration, or at least from the, the vantage of the incoming national security advisor, might look in the, the Biden administration. And this uh, article is uh, titled uh, More, comma, Less, comma, or Different, question mark, where U.S. foreign policy should and shouldn't go from here, Jake Sullivan, the January, February 2019 uh, edition. And you can find that at your nearest Google. Uh, he opens by saying, since November 2016, the US foreign policy community has embarked on an extended voyage of soul searching, filling the pages of publications like this one with essays on the past, present, and future of the liberal international order and the related question of where US grand strategy goes from here. The prevailing sentiment is not for just more of the same. I think, Breck, you, uh, you mentioned that uh, uh, the O'Biden team is not going to be the, the uh, Obama team. Uh, Jake uh, Sullivan continues, big questions are up for debate in ways they have not been for many years. What is the purpose of U.S. foreign policy? Are there fundamental changes in the world that demand a corresponding change in approach? He goes on to uh, argue uh, against uh, retrenchment by bringing up two books um, worth mentioning. And he suggests that people uh, take a look at these books. They're by uh, Stephen Walt and John Mersheimer, uh, well-known uh, academics. Uh, they were um, criticized heavily for writing a piece about the, the uh, uh, political action committee supporting Israel. And uh, they've uh, uh, etched out uh, other areas in their um, uh, bona fides on uh, U.S. foreign policy, but that's that's where many uh, folks may have heard the names. Uh, but they uh, they've written a couple of books. Uh, Waltz is called "The Hell of Good Intentions: America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy," and Mearsheimer has written a book called "The Great Delusion: Liberal Dreams and International Realities." And uh, as as Sullivan says, the titles give clear hints of the cases they lay out against democracy promotion against humanitarian intervention, against nation building, against NATO expansion, 
for restraint and offshore balancing. And uh, Sullivan says they, they both make uh, some points, but uh, the book suffered from a failure to distinguish between clear mistakes such as the war in Iraq and flawed outcomes flowing from imperfect options, which are the norm in a messy business like foreign policy. So I, I would uh, commend this article uh, to your attention. I won't uh, go through it uh, much more, but it, uh, it does give uh, by way of uh, criticizing an approach to US foreign policy, it does give us an idea where Mr. Sullivan's uh, interests lie. So again, that uh, is more, less, or different in the January, February 2019 uh, foreign policy. Uh, the, uh, the article that I, I was drawing some uh, citations from that I wanted to discuss today uh, was a, another uh, uh, insightful piece. This is by Robert Gates in the December 18th New York Times, and it's called The World is Full of Challenges. Here's how Biden can meet them. And some of the points that uh, former Secretary of Defense and former Sec uh, Director of uh, Central Intelligence uh, and a lifelong uh, analyst of, uh, of uh, political military affairs uh, in, the, uh, in the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, Gates uh, talks about Biden uh, framing his foreign policy around three, three themes, re-engaging with America's friends and allies, renewing our participation in international organizations and relying more heavily on non-military instruments of power. And Dick, I think you, you went through uh, some of, the, of those concepts. Yeah, all uh, three of those just make eminent sense to me. I think that's sure. spot on. Yeah, and uh, you know we'll we'll kick this around a little bit, but he he talks about the uh, renewal of uh, America's lead in NATO and the alliance of democracies. And I know there's there's going to be a international uh, event um, on uh, getting democracies together, and primarily uh, the Western nations, NATO, and and some others uh, to talk about uh, the consequences of states like Turkey, Hungary, and increasingly Poland. Uh, moving towards or having fully embraced uh, authoritarianism. Um, and and he, he points out, this is Gates, he points out, there's no provision in the NATO charter for removing a state, but uh, creative diplomacy is possible, including suspension or other punitive steps. So he uh, Gates goes through and talks uh, about NATO and, and getting uh, reinvigorated in our multilateral uh, institutions with Western democracies. He turns to China and uh, talks about uh, it being a multinational or multidimensional uh, competition and uh, a transnational challenge that will require uh, within the US government formal involvement of uh, multi-agency approaches, uh, some of which uh, have not been involved necessarily in this kind of approach to foreign policy, but uh, America needs a whole of government approach. Um, he talks about uh, our non-defense instruments of power being in need of uh, dire reform, uh, but he goes into some of the, uh, the things that have worked well. He uh, mentions George Bush's uh, emergency plan for AIDS relief having been uh, a terrific success in, in Africa. And uh, uh, Dick, I, I think you might have mentioned, uh, and, and it, it didn't occur to me, but it, it's uh, startlingly obvious that President Trump never went to Africa. That's right. Uh, that's that's uh, incredible. Closest he uh, got was Saudi Arabia and dancing around with the sword. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. You know, if I could jump in on the on this idea of of somehow harnessing the the democracies together, 
Um, it's been an idea that I've been, been enamored with for a long time. I mean, when the United Nations uh, basically is the good, the bad, and the ugly, and uh, you, know, you, you get a certain product that comes out of there because the ugly and the bad can take on the good and this the institutional nature of it. But if, if you had a basically a UN for functioning liberal democracies only, that would provide another venue in the world for the good guys to coordinate and get together and work on you know, bad problems and wouldn't have the baggage of the UN where you know, one of the bad guys could veto something in the Security Council. So I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, the Biden administration will push forward with this concept and maybe we'll see something come out of it. Yeah. Uh, in terms of dealing with uh, the Western democracies, though, and, and NATO specifically, uh, Gates does uh, criticize uh, some of the countries, including uh, Germany, uh, and, and says that Trump rightly pointed out they didn't spend enough on defense. Although, frankly, I think uh, that that complaint was overblown uh, to the detriment of, of the NATO alliance. Uh, but but he also uh, talks about this recent uh, investment agreement between uh, the EU and China as being heading uh, in the wrong directions. But I think uh, that's probably something that uh, the Biden administration will take on early in the process. Uh, he, he does talk about multilateral institutions. We need to get uh, reinvolved and reinvigorated in uh, institutions like the WHO. And, and Dick, you mentioned the Paris uh, Peace Accord. And we have... Uh, the new uh, climate conference coming up uh, this year well, in I, Scotland. You know, somewhere, and I'm gonna to try to find that again, but there was somebody put together a list of all of the things in treaties, agreements, executive orders, you know, that Trump had changed or pulled the United States out of. And it was just incredible. There was over 50 or 60, some of these things. And some of them, you know, just you, you uh, pick up on, ending the protection for the spotted owl or something so you can harvest trees. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. So I'm gonna dig that out because I think there's a huge amount of sort of reversing that has to take place under the Biden administration to get rid of some of these bad things that Trump did. He's, he's doing some of that today and this week with the executive right. orders, but there are some things that are irreversible like our withdrawal from the Open Skies Treaty and the Intermediate uh, Nuclear Forces uh, Agreement, which was a decades old agreement with the Soviet Union and now the Russian Federation right. on, uh, on, on halting, uh, limiting the spread of nuclear weapons. Uh, we have in front of us the New START Agreement and uh, the Biden administration, Jake Sullivan, indicated that we would be uh, re-upping uh, the five-year extension on that. Uh, and that limits the uh, strategic nuclear weapons between the United States and Russia. So that, that's, uh, that's important stuff. Uh, the last point that uh, Gates makes is that the United States has done uh, very poorly in strategic communications. Uh, that is our ability to spread uh, our message and influence governments and peoples. Uh, it's uh, inadequate and outdated. And this is an element of soft power, which uh, Dick, you know, being a, a member of the diplomatic uh, corps, uh, I'm sure you're, you're well versed in uh, the implements of influencing our friends and adversaries uh, using non-military means. And, and I think Gates is having been a Secretary of Defense uh, sees that uh, you know, diplomacy and information and using social media and everyone, everybody synchronizing the message that, uh, that the administration wants to put out 
Yeah. Um, and, well, during, and, during the Cold War. And, that, we, and that's not surprising anybody. During the Cold War, we had the United States Information Agency, and that the basic thrust of that organization was to tell America's story abroad. And we had many, many embassies had a library, an American house where you could go in and learn about, you know, the fundamentals of democracy and how things went. Uh, and we had the Voice of America and Radio Liberty and Radio Marti. Uh, the radio stations were under frontal full-blown attack by Trump, who tried to basically shut down many of those activities. I think Gates is, Gates is one of my heroes. I think the man always kind of makes sense, and he got the bigger picture that it's, you know, military force is not a standalone twig. You know, it's, it's, it's part of a bundle, which includes diplomacy and soft power, aid, doing things of that sort. So I think he's right. I think it would be ideal to, to uh, have to go back to some of these things and reinstitute the international USIS. So that, that's, uh, that's some of what uh, the Biden administration will face in the world. And, and I will mention uh, another item I got in my uh, inbox today uh, from the World Affairs Councils of America, which is the uh, umbrella organization, uh, com uh, the association hub for our World Affairs Council and the 90 other ones around the country. And I'm going to post this on our website and there will be a link in the archive version of this uh, global news review. There are a couple of articles in here that uh, WACA uh, recommends on recrafting uh, American foreign policy. So take a look at that on our website or the uh, youtube.com slash TNWAC version of um, this broadcast. And um, you'll, uh, you'll be smarter for having done it. And while you're at the TNWAC.org website, uh, take a look at the membership page and uh, if you're not already a member, please sign up to be a member. That explains there all the member benefits, the, the uh, free newsletters you get, uh, invitations to special events, and uh, knock on wood, um, sooner or later, we're going to return to in-person programming. Although uh, I'm sure Dr. Breck Walker and Ambassador Dick Bowers will want to continue our get together <laughs> here every Wednesday afternoon at uh, 1 p.m. Central time. And uh, we invite you uh, all to come back and, uh, and join with us. Any closing comments, gentlemen? Actually, I'd make one if it's okay. You all were kind of uh, uh, earlier perhaps making fun that uh, Anthony Blinken looks pretty cool with an electric guitar in his hand, and I agree, uh, but that maybe Mike Pompeo would not. But I think Mike Pompeo with a tuba and an oompa-pa band would fit that, uh, <laughs> fit that pretty well. That's it. I got the image. Mike and Lederhosen. With, I can with see Lederhosen it. And yeah, with a little hat with a feather in it. Kind of, you got it, man. There's, there's an opportunity for a meme. Oh, <laughs> um, well, it's it was fun today, Pat. Thanks. It was fun today. Breck, you won the internet today. Okay. Well, uh, well, let's 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 take a look at the uh, uh, answer to the question of the week. And uh, the answer is uh, B, Alexei Navalny. Uh, he's been in the news a lot, and he is one brave man to be going back to lead a protest movement uh, in Russia nowadays. And he is, I guess, have been arrested for at least 30 days now. Is that right, Pat? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, they took him to a police station and called it, I guess, whatever passed for their legal um, process. Uh, he was. Uh, 
I believe uh, it was an extension of a previous uh, offense that he had been charged with. Uh, that uh, well, he was he was charged with violating the terms of agreement for a previous charge. So. Okay, well, we, we are going to uh, sign off here, but uh, on the way out, we will share a little bit more of, uh, of Mr. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and his, uh, his band. What, what are they called, Breck? Uh, the Coalition of the Willing. Okay. <laughs> Lincoln's in the blue shirt, right? Right. Yeah. Here's <laughs> our new Secretary of State, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> He's a lefty. Down. That's great. All right. All right, gentlemen. Have a good week. Have God a good bless week. America. Thank you all.